The decision hasn't come lightly. I mean, I have, for the sort of last 10 years, wanted this. Worth every shot with Yaz. I kind of did hope that in my 30s I might meet somebody, but it hasn't worked out that way for me. Please welcome to my podcast, embryologist Victoria Wigley. Hi there. Hi. Thank you for having me on. I'm so, so happy to finally have an embryologist on as well, because well, before we just talk a bit about the work that you guys do when it comes to uh, people's fertility journeys, you, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an embryologist? I had about 14 years or so of clinical practice. And obviously, I built up my career from there went up to the point that I became a lab manager in my last role at New Life uh, Fertility Centre. And I started spending um, a little bit more time with the patients when I was in the lab manager role. Um, And that then made me sort of make up this new career um, that I'm now on at the moment, which is all about embryology, um, where I'm really guiding patients through uh, their cycles and being that independent person that they can they can speak to, they can turn to, be their support, um, and also just be an unbiased person to help guide them through treatment options and, and things that you know they, they may be unsure of, um, and just to help them understand more, really. That's it. And you mentioned and on your Instagram, like knowledge is power, and it's great to have somebody that uh, you know that can help you almost at the other end. Well, not a phone call, but you know at the other end of a bit of social media, which is great to have somebody like that on yeah. on hand. I mean, so you've got a website, you've got the Instagram page called All About Embryology. Just a, a couple of weeks ago I think you celebrated a year of All About Embryology so congratulations on that and uh, tell us a bit about what it is then and and what you can offer people like myself who are going through a fertility journey can you just explain a little bit more about what you do so if a patient um, has so I I have two sort of levels of patients that I work with Um, I have the patients who um, are very early in their journey so they might have decided that um, they've been trying naturally for long enough and they are now going down the route of, of fertility treatment and they have that initial consultation with the doctor and they come away and they are more confused and more overwhelmed than they were before they even started um, going into the clinic so those patients are the ones that I want to capture before they start their cycles to really just be a sounding board for them and go through all of those questions um, that they have that maybe they haven't had a chance to to ask the doctors or they you know the appointments were a little bit rushed or they just didn't really understand so it's a really guiding them through and just letting them know exactly what to expect um, and you know getting them in a stronger position for when they start so they're the one group of patients that I work with um, and the other group are the ones that have maybe had a few cycles already and things aren't working they aren't um, falling pregnant and for those patients it's really that I can analyze exactly what's been happening on their cycles, go through, we can look at things like the egg numbers, the fertilization rates, how their blast cysts are developing, all things like that, that maybe they haven't had a chance to really go into detail with an embryologist um, for their cycles. And we can then start looking at the the what next, um, you know, what what other treatment options could there be that might be more beneficial? Are there maybe any add-ons that might be at this stage worth looking into and really sort of helping them their guide that their next steps um, and then for both patients really it's just a, a support as well so I have patients that might message me you know nine o'clock on a Sunday night when they are suddenly spiraling and they don't understand something or they want to know something before their appointment and for those patients I just let them email me and I just have a chat over email which obviously I don't charge them for just to be that person to, to us rather than let them try and answer it themselves on the internet, which obviously, as we all know, can be a, a bad place sometimes when you're looking for answers. 
And you're so right. I mean, it's good to have somebody like you on the other end of the phone because I, I recently in one of my episodes I was talking about that I came away from the clinic. I was really frustrated because I hadn't asked some of the questions that I could. I mean, sometimes you're a bit yeah. distracted and you know, um, and and you forget to ask, and then you just get and they're they're kind of baffling you with the signs. Sometimes the doctors and the nurses. So it's kind of good to have you on hand like that. So so you obviously embryologists yeah. play a massive part in the reproductive process. Uh, you really are amazing people can you just tell us more about because I know you take us sort of backstage sometimes back behind the scenes footage of a, a t- sort of typical work day for you uh, so yeah. yeah so can you tell us a little bit about what, what you would do on a, on a sort of typical day-to-day basis okay so um and it really depends on whether it's a, a big clinic or a small clinic and um, so if it's um, a large clinic what happens is the embryologists are all on a rotor system so you will come in for instance on a day and you might be on the rotor for egg collections so you start the day you set up and then you stay on the egg collection station until they are done, unless you need a break, which sometimes is, is rare in the lab <laughs> on a busy day. But um, you, that will be your job for the morning. Then after lunch, you would perhaps be assigned to doing the embryo transfers or, or the freezing. So that you would have a particular task you'd be assigned to for the day. And it would all be d- divided up um, between, between the, the staff members on that day. If you're working in a smaller clinic, uh, like the last clinic that I was at, you are here, there and everywhere. So you um, are much more of a multitasking because there's only a few of you usually in the clinic. Um, so you might be do one egg collection, then, um, you know, prepare the sperm sample, then go back and do the embryo transfer, then speak to the patients, then go and have lunch, then come and do the embryo transfers in the afternoon or the freezing or you'd be dotted around um, and then trying to do the paperwork and stuff all in between. So it's much more of a multitasking role when you're working in a small clinic, which I love. Some of my colleagues much prefer the bigger clinics where they don't really have to sort of dot around a bit. They know exactly what they're set for the day. Um, but yeah, I quite I quite like the getting my hands into every part. <laughs> so some people new kind of to the world of IVF, um, they maybe don't know what ICSI is. I know I was talking about it to a friend recently and she had no idea, even though she's on, on a journey herself, she had no idea what ICSI is. Um, and I must admit, I didn't know when I first kind of entered the world. Can you, can you yeah. explain what this is, Victoria? Of course, of course. So ICSI um, is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which sounds a crazy sort of group of words. But what it really means is um, where the embryologist individually picks a sperm and injects it directly into the egg. Now, this is something that actually started um, about by accident. Um, it wasn't ever something that embryologists ever did. Normally, they would just do conventional IVF where we would mix the sperm and the eggs together. Um, but they were trialing a procedure where they were putting the sperm um, between the egg and the outer shell of the egg. And by mistake, one day, someone went into the egg itself and then the egg actually fertilised. So they had to get a very, very quick licence. This was many, many, many years ago. They had to get a very quick licence to say, this is the only egg that we have that has fertilised and it went on to develop to an embryo. Can we put it in? Because obviously we've done something that isn't technically a licensed procedure. And it got approved. Um, and that is how ICSI evolved. Um, and it's something that we do very frequently. Now, potentially, you know, about half, sometimes even more of our patients have ICSI. Um, and really there for the patients where um, the main reason is where there's um, a male factor issue. So if we try and do conventional IVF, where we mix the sperm and the eggs together in the dish, if there aren't enough good quality sperm there, those eggs won't fertilise. So we have to actually physically put the sperm into the egg to try and get the eggs to fertilise. There are sometimes some other patients that that might benefit from this um, where 
everything on paper looks completely normal with the sperm, but for some reason, the sperm and the eggs aren't binding. So if they, the sperm isn't able to bind onto the egg, then the egg won't fertilize. So sometimes some patients might have complete failed fertilization with IVF, and it's been completely um, a shock to all of us and because everything had looked normal. And those patients, you would then on another cycle need to go and do X4. Yeah, that 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 actually rang because that that's what happened to me. My first cycle was I had eleven eggs, ten mature, and then it was a field fertilization, and they they didn't oh, understand gosh, yeah. it. Yeah, they, I was chatting to one of the embryologists, and he said, you know, your eggs were a bit on the greeny side. You know, they were forty one years of age, but there was no, yeah, there was nothing untoward, and they didn't really understand yeah. what yeah. So it was like, yeah, that that's, and sometimes that just shows what the the actual cause of the infertility often has been. Yep. And it's not until you actually get the eggs and sperm into the lab that we do realise that. And then how, how important is kind of motility when, when you're talking about fertility and, and obviously the sperm and whatnot? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the most important factors because if the sperm aren't swimming, then they aren't going to reach the egg. Um, so it, it's something that's really important. You need that good forward progressive motility um, for, for the, the sperm to actually be able to go on and, and achieve fertilisation. I mean, even with the conventional IVF that we do in the, in the lab, you know, you need the sperm to be able to, to swim towards the egg, even though it's a much smaller distance than they would have to do naturally. Um, but we do need a good forward uh, progressive motility. Can you also talk us um, through the grading process? Because I mean, I've obviously been at the, at the receiving end of like, you know, having my embryos graded. And I remember them saying, <laughs> one of the doctors sort of saying, you know, not to worry too much because of the, he says, it's not like your GCSE results. Because I think my, it was a grade C and he said the A, a and C, there's not a much, a huge difference between A and C. So, I mean, I suppose it's, it's I suppose it's different for every embryologist, isn't it, really, when it comes to the grading process? Yeah, I mean, we, we try and have a fairly standardised process. There are different clinics that will use slightly different um, grading systems. So, for instance, one clinic I worked at when we were grading the cleavage stage embryos, so the ones that were sort of day two to day three, typically, before they then go on and start forming the blastocyst. One clinic I worked at had grade one to four, and four was the, the highest grade, and then my latest clinic, grade one was the highest grade. Now, that obviously can be very confusing for the patients because if, if they're moving between clinics, they might think that, you know, that the embryos were, were better quality at one clinic than the other. But actually, it's just their individual grading. So it's very important to, to let the patients know as an embryologist that when, when we use words to describe it, not just numbers. Um, so I would often say to a patient, you have a top quality embryo and that would be my highest grade or you'd have a good quality you'd have an average quality or you'd have a poor quality that's how I found patients understood it a lot better rather than throwing lots of numbers at them and then you can obviously explain about the cell numbers um, but again what patients need to know the cell numbers are only important to them to know is is the embryo developing at a good rate so is it the correct number of cells that we're expecting at that point in time or is the embryo developing too slowly, or in some cases too fast? But again, it's it's much better to explain to a patient in in that way than looking at individual grading, um, which we need to obviously do for for our records. Um, but to explain a little bit more about obviously what we look for, obviously as I just mentioned, we're looking at the rate of division. So we we count the number of cells um, in the early stage embryos, um, and then we're looking for the quality. We're looking at um, things like the fragmentation level. So when a cell divides, it should make a nice clean division from one cell into two cells. But often that isn't always a nice clean division. Sometimes you get little bits of fragments that break away as the cell is dividing. And these will stay around the embryo and accumulate around the embryo. 
So we want to look at what level of fragmentation there is. And obviously the higher level of fragmentation you have, the poorer the quality of the embryo. And then again, we look at things like the cell sizes. You want a nice even division between the cells rather than it being you know, 75, 25% division. You want it a nice 50-50 divide. And then you look at things like, are the cells granular? Um, is there anything abnormal looking perhaps in the division patterns? Things like that. So that will give us an overall grade for those early, early stage embryos. And then once the embryo forms a blastocyst, which is what we expect to see on day five and day six of the development, that's where there's a lot more changes that have happened. Um, so the embryo looks very different and therefore we grade it very differently as well. So often what the patients will hear is three things that explain how the quality is. The first one is the expansion. So how expanded the embryo is. And often this is a number. So if you've got an early blastocyst, it's often one or two. And then as it gets more expanded, it becomes three, fully expanded four. And then once it starts hatching, you might be five or six. Um, so that's the number that's usually the first number of the blastocyst. And then you have two letters and these grade the outer cells, which are what, what are called the trophectoderm cells. And they go on and form things like the placenta, the amniotic sac, all of that embryo, uh, extra embryonic material. And then you have the ball of cells in the middle called the inner cell mass. And that's what goes on and forms the baby. So each of those will have an individual grading um, and they're the letters. So this is what you were mentioning about the A to C um, grading. Um, and obviously AA is top you know, a full AA would be an absolutely textbook embryo. Obviously, not all patients will, will get embryos to that level and not all patients need embryos at that level. It's not always expected. Um, and we do get very good pregnancies still from BBs, BCs. Obviously, the chances do slightly go down with the grading. But generally speaking, um, the, the higher the, the quality the more likely the chance of implantation. Yeah, it's great because I've been on um, Magina for like nearly nearly three years and I'm learning so much from you, Victoria. It's fantastic. Oh, but my, my friend, well, I've got quite a lot of friends that are doing it as well. And, you know, we're, we're meeting for coffee these days and just talking more and more openly about it. And uh, uh, my friend um, just over the weekend kind of baffled me with a bit of science and she was talking about, um, you know, PGS and PGD. And yeah. how, how has that kind of sort of changed the, the fertility landscape? Uh, yeah, I mean, it has done hugely. I mean, it started all off um, with the PG, well, uh, it used to, so the names have changed slightly, but PGD was the original name for the diagnostic side. So where we would take a small group of cells um, and we would send them off for testing. Now, these would be for patients that had inherited conditions and they obviously then um, wanted to eliminate these in inherited conditions being passed on to, to their children. So, for instance, things like cystic fibrosis. Um, a mother and a father can both be carriers of a cystic fibrosis gene, but they may not be affected themselves. But by them having children together means that they have a, a, a one in four chance that a baby will have, have the condition. So by doing the screening, um, what we do is we, we see out of the group of embryos which ones have the, the, the gene or not, and therefore we can deselect against those ones that do have the faulty gene. Um, and that has absolutely revolutionised, you know, the, the options for these, these couples, um, because previously it would either be what we used to call uh, the reproductive roulette, where you take that gamble, especially if it's a one in four chance, you think, you know, let, let's try for it. Or you would then, uh, you know, conceive and then have the testing um, at the prenatal stage, so maybe around um, the, the 11, 12 week mark. But then you have the really, really difficult decision about what you'd then do with the result. 
or the last option would be to remain childless or or adopt um which obviously you know w- wouldn't be what some some people would want to do so by being able to offer this genetic screening is absolutely incredible because it just gives that extra option for these people now the pgs which is the old way of calling what we now call pgta which is pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy which again we have all of these um abbreviations for everything which um when you try and say them out loud it sounds like an absolute mouthful (laughs) but that's where so that's for patients who haven't got any inherited conditions but where we're just doing a a basic screening of their chromosomes to check for the number of chromosomes that they have. Now, for these patients, these are patients who might have um, be older. So often if the, if the woman's over 40, these are for patients um, who might have a history of failed um, implantation. So they've had multiple cycles where we're just not getting implantation, or they might have a history of having multiple uh, miscarriage. So again, it, these patients, um, it's not applicable for everyone. But for, for certain cohorts of patients, they're at a higher risk of having um, chromosome abnormalities. Now, with our women, as we get older, our, the, the level of chromosome abnormalities is naturally always going to increase. Um, so it's something that um, we know that, for instance, like Down syndrome. So that's the one that most people have heard most of. So with Down syndrome, you have three copies of chromosome 21. And that's something that, um, you know, as because it's it's something that it's one of the only chromosome abnormalities that really can develop on to, to having a live birth with. There are a couple of others, um, Edwards and Patel syndrome, which are chromosome 13 and, and 18. Um, but those ones, unfortunately, the baby will die very soon after birth. Um, but obviously Down syndrome is one we know most about because it's it's one that, you know, people can live um, seemingly very healthy, healthy lives up until, you know, a certain stage. And But most of the other chromosome abnormalities, unfortunately, they are just not compatible with life. So you will see the miscarriages, you'll see the implantation failures. And so what PGTA does is we take a small cohort of cells, just like we do with the the genetic testing I mentioned before, but we just do a general screen across the chromosomes. And then we can tell the patients out of the group of embryos, which ones are the ones that are, are most likely to achieve the pregnancy because they've come back chromosomally normal. Now it's no guarantee you'll get implantation, but it just helps the selection process. So if you have a big group of blastocysts, rather than going through them individually, it just helps um, uh, identify the, the, the stronger ones out of the group um, to hopefully stop the patients going through those multiple cycles of, of either miscarriage or implantation failure. It's just amazing all that you can do now. And, and well, just last week, I actually had um, ovarian PRP. How much do you know? I mean, okay. I, I don't know. Can you get that done? Because I went to Greece to get it done. I wasn't even sure if you could get it done here in, in the UK. But um, how much? Yeah, do you, it's not something I'm no. familiar with. So no, I, I don't know if it is something we can do over here. I didn't know too much about it myself. And um, I was talking to a guy at my work and he was kind of nodding along thinking, I'm like, and how does he know about ovarian PRP? I was kind of confused. But I think he was looking to get a hair transplant. And I think <laughs> it's the same sort of theory, theory. I think it's like the, you know, taking your own blood and then... Uh, I think, well, obviously for, for a hair transplant, you know, injecting and sort of uh, rejuvenating the follicles. And, and I think that's the sort of idea behind the whole ovarian PRP as well. But have you got kind of any success stories that you can share with us today, Victoria? Yeah, I mean, with um, success stories with patients that have had the genetic testing, is it or with anything in particular? 
if you have got it, yeah, the genetic tests and ones would be really good, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. So, I mean, I sit very much on the fence when it comes to genetic testing, because I think a lot of clinics will try and offer it to all patients. And that's something that I don't agree with. But I do very much believe um, that it is very, very uh, beneficial for this cohort of, of particular patients. And one in particular that um, I always will remember was a patient who had was was very young. She started her fertility journey. She was a, a single lady, so she'd had treatment with donor sperm. And she got pregnant fairly quickly using um, IUI, which is where we just prepare the sperm sample in the lab. Um, and then inseminate the, the lady with the with the prepared sperm sample. So she then came to have a sibling um, a few years later, and she had a few rounds of IUIs that didn't work. So she then tried IVF, and then unfortunately she did get pregnant, but she miscarried. Um, and then she had a, a, a I think about three or four frozen embryos. Used all of those, and she miscarried every single cycle. So the doctors were obviously a, a bit surprised because she she got pregnant so quickly the first time. So she did another round um, of, of IVF and um, miscarried again. So by this point, she'd generated quite a few frozen embryos and she just could not go through all of these miscarriages that were just happening over and over again. Um, and her clinic didn't do genetic testing. So she got in touch with me and um, transported her embryos over. And I think um, I biopsied um, 11 embryos in total for her um, that she'd accumulated over the cycles. And about 60-70% came back abnormal, um, which was obviously quite high. Um, the first round, she put one back and it didn't work, which was you know, heartbreaking. I thought, oh gosh, you know, is there now something else going on? But then she had the second embryo put back um, and about six months ago, she delivered a healthy baby. Um, so she now has her, her sibling and that for me is an, an ultimate um, you know, success story when it comes to using a particular treatment for a particular patient. Oh, that is amazing. And, and sometimes um, it is, is trying to get brilliant. to the root of, you know, what is maybe happening. I mean, I, I got a hysteroscopy recently as well, just trying to, you know, get to the bottom of maybe why it hasn't been working for you. There is there is ways to sort of maybe try and co inv do sort of inv your own investigations yeah. and whatnot. But uh, that is an amazing story. What would you say is the best part of your job? I mean, that is like a fantastic success story. It must be so yeah. amazing. I mean, the best part without a shadow of a doubt is when they bring the babies back. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you just meet this baby and you think, my goodness, I have taken you up and down in my pipette. I've injected <laughs> you. I've you know, all of these things that, you know, you will be sitting doing your job. And it, it's so it becomes so normal for what we do. This is what we, what we know and how we work. And then every now and again, it just suddenly takes you aback a bit. So sometimes I'll think um, if I'm doing an ICSI and I'll think, right, I'm going to choose that sperm and I go to immobilize it. And then for whatever reason, the sperm swims you know, away from my pet too quickly or, or there's, there's something I'm not able to, to immobilize it correctly. So then in an instant, I will move and, and find a new sperm. And at that point, sometimes it catches me and I think, my goodness, I could have just potentially changed the sex of this baby because <laughs> obviously the sperm is what determines the sex. I could have changed the hair colour. I could have all of these things that suddenly you think actually by me just deciding at that last minute to change which sperm I'm injecting could change this baby. And things like that just it makes you just go, my goodness, actually, <laughs> this is actually quite incredible. It's um, kind of mind blowing, so isn't it? I really? Just, yeah, <laughs> it really is. But it is it is the most wonderful job. It's it's hard. It's really hard. And it's really heartbreaking for us. I think patients don't sometimes realise 
just how involved we we get with it as well because there's such an emotional side to it for the, for the lab you know you'll come in and if you've done an ICSI and then you you look the next day and the eggs haven't fertilized there's so much that you take on yourself and you think god could i have done anything different you know it was there anything that you know we could have done that maybe could have made this this work and you know it, it's never the case because you know that you're following strict strict protocols um and you've done it for so many years but you still have that on you because you just so desperately want this to work for your patients um especially if you've got to know the patients it can be incredibly hard um but you just have to hold on to, to the times that it is it is brilliant and really really rewarding and would you have any idea of how many um children you're actually responsible for then Victoria goodness I I wouldn't know I've been doing it for nearly 15 years now so I yeah a lot a lot um I remember my first ever so it's it's hard to sometimes um take claim on which ones belong to which embryologists because obviously if you do an ICSI that that's quite kind of personal because you you know you've started that journey Mm -hmm. but then we'd often say that the person that did the embryo transfer so the embryologist that loaded the embryos into the catheter and helped, you know, put, put the embryos back, we'd say that that was your baby. Um, and I remember my first ever baby back in 2008 was a little boy called Bo. And I always remember the patient told me his name. And I remember that that was my very first one, <laughs> um, which was something that I've always, I mean, he must be, goodness, he must be, yeah, 15 now, um, 14, 15, which, yeah, is, is nuts to think. Um, but it is it is wonderful though um and it's it's brilliant when you, you get to sort of give them the cuddle when the patients bring them back in and you think you look very different last time i saw you but it is brilliant <laughs> <laughs> that's it must be surreal because you're kind of like right at the helm of it so oh this has been so 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 great to have you on it's finally great to have uh, an embryologist on but how can we find out more about the, the fantastic work that you do victoria how can we find out a bit more about all about embryology um so i'd probably say the best thing is is to follow on the social medias um as you said that i've got an instagram page um a facebook page which is the same same content um and i've just started in the world of tiktok which i never thought i'd hear myself say um but people did say that it's actually very good for the videos um because a big part of this is i just want to help educate i want to you know especially for a younger audience to get people just to know that actually it's you know we spend all our lives trying not to get pregnant and then suddenly when we do try and get pregnant obviously people expect it's going to happen and we need to educate the younger generation to say that actually it may not happen and what to be aware of um, and what actually the treatment options potentially are so I'm really trying to do a big educational drive um, at the moment so following the social medias um, is is brilliant for anyone that's interested or um, wants to learn a little bit more and then if if patients um, are, are wanting to to go down having the route of having some consultations with me, if you go onto my website, um, which is uh, www.allaboutembryology.co.uk, um, you can then see a little bit more about me um, and then uh, the consultations you can book directly via the, the website. So I do initial consultations, which are an hour. And then anyone that's had an initial consultation at any point can then have as many follow-ups after that, which is just 30 minute appointments. If they just want to sort of say, oh, I've just had a call from the embryologist. This is what they've said. I don't understand. Can you help? Or that they want me to go through the cycle with them after they've had the treatment, if it potentially hasn't worked um, and we can kind of just review everything. I'm sort of imagining it a bit um, like a doula is, for instance, in the States. You know, they, they have people that, you know, are there throughout their pregnancy 
but they're still having their midwife appointments they're still going to the hospital but it's that person just going alongside them um, that they can ask all the questions to they can be the support for all of those things that's how I'm imagining this I mean I've completely made up a, a career um, but I think it's something that, that really can benefit people and the, the people I've had so far um, in the last year you know they've really said how how much of a difference it's made so yeah that's been brilliant it's so true though because it's like you've got your friends and whatnot and, and they're not I mean they're helpful don't get me wrong they're a great support group but they don't really know what half the time what I'm yeah. talking about you know it's so good to have somebody on hand that really does know uh, their stuff so yeah I totally understand it's a great thing to be able to yeah no to that's be- that's what I'm really hoping for well, honestly, I've learned so much in the last half an hour. So oh, thank you brilliant. so much, Victoria, for joining me on this episode of Worth Every Shot. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Worth Every Shot 